Good morning, and welcome to the men's Bible study at Park City's Presbyterian Church. We are so glad that you are joining with us in this season, a season unlike any other, not just in terms of the pandemic that we face or the unrest in our nation, but a time when our entire church is united together in one singular study. If you're joining us now, you know that every single Bible study in our church, from men's to women's to couples, is studying the exact same thing. We're calling it signs and wonders, finding hope and the miracles of Jesus. And this morning, as men, we have the opportunity not just to listen to a lesson from a pastor like me, but more than that, it's an opportunity for us to meet again as men, as brothers, in God's word together. And so what I want you to do is after this lesson is finished and this video is over, don't just stop there. But I wanna encourage you to meet with other men. And so if you do not yet have a discussion group, I want you to email Elaine Montague at elaine.montague at pcpc.org and she will help you find a men's discussion group. All of our discussion groups this week are gonna be meeting either online through Zoom after they watch the video, or they're gonna have the opportunity as well to meet off campus in person in a living room or a back porch somewhere, a way for us to gather together as the men of God in the word of God. And so this morning we kick off a 10 week series on the miracles of Jesus Christ. And I'm so excited to kick us off. This morning, we're looking at Jesus's first miracle. It's the wedding at Cana. This morning, I wanna talk about weddings, wine, and the glory of God. The other day, I was uh, reading the Bible to my daughters. It's something I do every single night. I have three girls, ages eight, six, and three. And it's one of my great privileges and joys as a father to read stories to them before they go to bed. And at the end of every book and story and whatever I'm reading to them, we always end with the Bible. And what we're doing right now is a little bit different. Usually I let them choose the passage or the story, but right now we're actually working our way through a Bible plan, a reading plan, which means we don't really have a choice. So the other day we were reading in the book of Genesis. And because we didn't have a choice, we were reading the genealogy of Noah. Now, I don't know about you, if you've ever done a Bible reading plan before, you usually get to the genealogies in the Bible and you kind of tune out. So it's not just a challenge for us as adults, but how do you make that interesting for a kid, let alone an eight-year-old, a six-year-old, and a three-year-old? So there I am, I'm reading them the genealogy of Noah, and then I get to a man named Enoch. And finally, I know my plan. Here's how I make this interesting. Now, if you know the story of Enoch, you know that he didn't die, but the Bible literally says God just took him. This is what it says in Genesis. It says, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God, and after he fathered Methuselah, 300 years and had other sons of daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Now get this, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. After I read that, I just made it the biggest deal. I said, look, girls, do you see? Isn't this such a big deal? Isn't this amazing? Enoch didn't die. God just took him. And all of a sudden, my oldest daughter stopped me right there. 
And she did what only children could do. She asked a question I had a hard time answering. I don't know about you, if you have children, if you've ever worked with children before, they have a way of asking very honest, probing and simple questions that for us as adults, usually those questions put us in our place. And this is what it was like for me. She looked at me and she said, Daddy, why doesn't God do amazing things like that anymore? I looked at her. (laughs) I did what any good parent or Bible study leader would do. I stalled. I asked her to repeat the question. (laughs) I'm, I'm sorry, baby girl, I didn't hear you. She said, Daddy, all of these amazing things that we read in the Bible, all of the miracles that Jesus did, why doesn't God do those things anymore? And I must admit, I found myself a little stumped. I wonder for you this morning, if you have asked the exact same question my oldest daughter has asked. That as you look at the world around us right now, perhaps you find yourself asking the same thing, God, why aren't you doing miraculous things anymore? I read about what you've promised in the Bible. I see these things that Jesus did. And yet all I see when I look around the world is pain and suffering. Where are you? God, do you still work miracles? It's a fair question. Not only is it a fair question, but it's an honest question. And a question I think we should all ask in this day. For you right now, maybe you are looking at your business, your livelihood, your job, or maybe it's even the job that you've lost. If you're a student this morning, you're looking at what it means to be a college student or a master's student or a doctoral student, and you're doing it online. If you're looking at the political unrest in our day right now, and you're thinking, God, what are you allowing to happen to our country? Or you're looking at this pandemic and you're wondering, when is it going to be over? And you find yourself asking as a man, God, where are you? Do you still work miracles today? Brothers, that's the question, at least one of the questions we're going to be asking this fall semester. As we consider Jesus's miracles, one of the things we want to ask is, as we read about these miracles and see the amazing works that Jesus did, can God do it again? Does God still work miracles among us or not? C.S. Lewis sought to answer that question several decades ago. And I want you to listen what Lewis says. He says, there is an activity of God displayed throughout creation, a wholesale activity, let us say, which men refuse to recognize. The miracles done by God incarnate, that's Jesus, living as a man in Palestine, perform the very same things as this wholesale activity, but at a very different speed and on a smaller scale. Now, I know that's a bit dense for most of us, and especially if you're watching this early in the morning. And so Lewis summarizes this way, and I want you to hear this. He says, the miracles, and he's talking about the miracles of Jesus here. He says, the miracles, in fact, are a retelling, 
in small letters of the very same story, which is written across the whole world in letters too large for some of us to see. What's Lewis saying? He's saying when we look at the miracles of Jesus, we're seeing this small little picture of a much bigger story. He's saying there is even right now, as we study God's word together, well after Lewis lived and wrote, even now God is writing a miraculous story, a story of redemption, a story of the glory of his son, Jesus Christ, as he establishes his kingdom through his death, his resurrection, and the day he will come again to make all things new. God is at work even now working miracles, but this story is so big that rarely do we have eyes to see it. And so it took 2,000 years ago for God to come down to us in the smallness of a man, the God-man Jesus Christ. And this God-man Jesus worked miracles. So yes, Jesus no longer is here in the flesh anymore. He is seated at the right hand of God. That is true. And so because of that, because Jesus is not in the flesh now, no, that's true. We do not see Jesus in front of us working miracles like we read about in the gospels. But that does not mean that Jesus is not right now from the right hand of God working the miraculous story of redemption. Brothers, what I want you to see this morning in this entire fall study together is that God is miraculously at work through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ, as he establishes his kingdom all around us and deep within our hearts. And so this morning, I want to begin by talking about the glory of Jesus and weddings. As we get into these miracles, what I want you to understand is there's a, a larger story behind each miracle. If we just focus on the miracle itself, we'll miss the larger story and every detail matters. So I want to begin by talking about a wedding. It's where this first miracle takes place. John tells us in John 2 verse 1, on the day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there and Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Now this is incredibly significant. The location of this first miracle matters. You can say that the entire Bible is a story of a marriage a marriage not between a husband and a wife, but a marriage between God and his people. And so as we read the book of Genesis, even, we read the story of Adam and Eve and the story of this first couple. There's something deeper at work. Every wedding that I officiate, I begin with the end of the Bible. I begin with Revelation chapter 21. In Revelation chapter 21, John, the same John that we're reading this morning, writes this. It's his vision of the return of Jesus. 
He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared, listen to this, as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. There shall be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for former things have passed away. And he was seated on the throne and said this, behold, I am making all things new. Now, why do I read that passage at the beginning of every wedding? Because every wedding is just a shadow of a greater wedding that is to come. John tells us that the new heavens and the new earth will come down. He says, like a bride adorned for her husband. The story of the Bible is a story that's leading up to this moment where the God of the universe pursued a faithless bride, the people of God. It's why in the Old Testament, Sin is not just referred to as immorality, but the metaphor that the prophets used was to call sin adultery. That when you and I sin, it's as if we are cheating on God. We are breaking our marriage vows. God being the husband and we as his people, the bride. Now, as men this morning, that metaphor is a bit tough for us to swallow. I get that. As men, it's hard for us to see ourselves as the bride. It's hard to see God as a husband. And for those of you this morning who are single, it's even more difficult to to see this metaphor. But what I want you to understand is that this metaphor is everything, especially if we're going to understand this miracle at a wedding. Why does it matter that Jesus's first miracle was at a wedding? Because Jesus is beginning to let the world know that he is the bridegroom. He is the promised bridegroom. He is the Messiah. He is the one whom God is sending to make all things new. He is the one who is keeping God's vow to be a faithful husband, even when you and I are a faithless bride, when we cheat on him in our sin. And so throughout the, even the gospels themselves, we see this kind of language used. Jesus, when he taught in parables, talked about the kingdom of God being like a wedding feast. The Old Testament and the prophets, the prophet Hosea talks about our relationship with God being built around vows. God's vow, he says, to betroth us to him forever. Hosea 2 verse 19, God says, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and mercy. Do you hear the language of betrothal? That God has made a vow to us, a vow that he has kept in the person of Jesus. And so you cannot miss the location of this miracle. The location is everything. Jesus at a wedding. 
We're told, as the story goes on, verse 3, that when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, I think you have to stop right there for just a second. And especially if you know where the story is going. This is the first recorded miracle of Jesus. There's not any others. And yet what I want you to see is that Jesus' mother somehow believes, somehow expects Jesus to do something about this. She's going to her son, who at this point is, is just a carpenter. And she comes to him and says, hey, we've got a problem. There's no wine. Now, on, on a surface, Jesus' response to this should not surprise us. I want you to imagine you've gone to a wedding with your own mother. And let's just imagine that the bar now has completely run out of drinks. And your mother and you are just guests at this wedding. You're not in charge. You haven't been planning this. You're not fitting the bill. And your mom comes to you all in a tizzy and says, the bar's run out of drinks. What's your reaction going to be? Maybe not unlike Jesus' reaction at some level. Look at verse 4. Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with me? <laughs> now, there's a couple of things I want you to see. One is just, again, think about the situation. What am I supposed to do about that? I'm not in charge. I'm not the groom. We're not the one who planned this wedding. It's a, it's a terrible thing. But what does that have to do with me? I think at some level, yes, that's the kind of question that Jesus is asking. And yet there's something deeper here. In other words, I think he's recognizing that Mary seems to think that it does have something to do with him. That there's a reason why Mary has come to Jesus. She believes that Jesus is more than just a man like you or me. That even now in this moment before we have any other recorded miracle, she knows that Jesus can do miracles. And again, verse four, notice what Jesus says. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, now many theologians, many commentators have written a whole lot of things about the fact that Jesus calls her woman, not mother, not Mary, but calls her woman. And a lot of them will tell you things like, well, look, in those days, that's just a word that they used. And so don't see that as offensive. And I think all of that is true. But I do think there's something deeper here. You see, because there's another instance in the gospel of John where Jesus calls his mother woman. And it has to do with what he says next. He says, woman, what does that have to do with me? Now, notice what he says. He doesn't say, look, I'm not the groom. He doesn't say, look, I, I don't have any wine to provide. What do you want me to do about it? No, he says this. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. What is Jesus talking about? Well, in the gospel of John, anytime you see the word hour, it always refers to the cross. He's saying, it's not yet time for me to go to the cross. And there will be a time when Jesus is on the cross and this is what he'll say. He'll look at his mother hanging from the cross and he will say, woman, and he'll look at John and say, behold your son. 
in this moment, we see Jesus saying, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And it is foreshadowing a time three years from now where Jesus will work another miracle. A miracle we'll get to in 10 weeks. The miracle of him conquering sin and death on the cross. And on the third day, rising again. Mary, as she hears this, is looking at him and she tells him that something has to be done. She looks at these servants and without hearing any other response to Jesus, she says, do whatever he tells you. And so we see what Jesus tells them. He tells them to go get some water. So the second thing I want us to look at real briefly this morning is the glory of Jesus in water. We're told in verse six that there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. So what you need to know is these were huge jars. They're made of stone and they can hold a lot of water. Now, some have said, look, this number six is significant. Six being the number of imperfection, incompleteness, seven be the the holy number of God of completeness. And maybe that's true, maybe it's not, but I do think there's something bigger here. It's not the number, it's what these jars were for. Notice what it says. They were there for the Jewish rites of purification. Okay, what does that mean for us? as 21st century Americans, Gentiles. We don't have a Jewish background. What does it mean? It's really important. This water was used for ritual cleansing. In the Jewish faith, they believed that they needed to regularly wash, not because of germs, but because of sin. And so before they did lots of things, particularly as God's people in worship, they were quick to wash themselves, especially if they'd been around Gentiles or unclean things. They would have these ritual washings to purify themselves. And what you have to understand is there's lots of water in these jars because it was a continual practice. In other words, you couldn't just wash yourself once and be like, okay, I'm clean now. You had to wash yourself all the time because they were always dirty, not dirty from the dust and grime and filth of living in an arid desert climate, but they were dirty because of the stain of sin and they knew it. So over and over and over again, they had to wash. After every sin, after every unclean thing, they had to wash, washing and washing and washing. See, brothers, what I want you to see this morning is that these big stone jars used for the rites of purification represents the law of God. The Old Testament tells us that God has given us the law to show us the standard. And that standard is very high, higher than any man could ever attain to. That even if you just list the 10 commandments this morning and you rehearse them, you will recognize that you've broken at least one, if not all of them since you've been awake and you need to be cleansed. What the New Testament tells us is that the law points to Jesus. Jesus did not come to abolish the law, 
but to fulfill it. And this is what we are beginning to see in this miracle at a wedding in Cana. Jesus, verse seven, says to the servants, fill the jars with water and they filled them up to the brim. Jesus came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. He came so that the law might be fulfilled through him and we might find cleansing and washing not over and over again, but once and for all through Jesus's death on the cross. Jesus offers a greater washing and a greater cleansing than the law on its own could ever offer. Not because there's a deficiency in the law, but because there's a deficiency in our hearts. Prophet Ezekiel put it this way, Ezekiel 36, verse 25. Prophet writes, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from your idols, I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, my law, and be careful to obey my rules. And you shall dwell in the land that I give to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. Jesus is the fulfillment of Ezekiel 36. That is what we are beginning to see in this miracle at Cana, that Jesus offers a ritual cleansing unlike any other. Through his death and resurrection, he has the ability to clean your very heart from the inside out. The third and final thing I want us to see this morning is in the miracle at Cana, we see the glory of Jesus in wine. For those of you who are meeting at night, now might be a good time to pour a glass. Maybe, I'm just saying just an idea. So here we have verse eight, John chapter two. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. In other words, draw out some of this water that you've now put into these big stone jars. So they took it, verse nine, when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. Why? Verse 10. And said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, but when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus turned water, not just into wine. He turned it into good wine and he saved it to the very end. Now, there is so much here that I wish we had time to talk about, but let me just give you a few thoughts. In the Bible, wine is a picture of gladness, a picture of joy, a picture of abundance, a picture of fruitfulness, a picture of flourishing under the reign and authority of God. Let me give you just one example of this. The prophet Jeremiah, verse, uh, chapter 31, verse 12 It's right here. 
Jeremiah says, they shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil. Many more examples other than the prophet Jeremiah throughout all of the prophets that use wine as a picture of not just abundance and celebration and joy, but of redemption. That when God comes again through the Messiah, it'll be like wine flowing, a celebration unlike any other, that there will be joy and merriment and gladness at the goodness of the Lord, that we will do nothing because we cannot help but sing aloud in the height of Zion, be radiant over God's goodness. The fact that Jesus turned this water into wine is again a picture that the Messiah has come. The bridegroom has come and he has come to pour out gladness and joy, the joy of salvation. Now wine It's also pretty meaningful, not just in the Old Testament and not just for the prophets, but it's also important in the Gospels, particularly it's important in the Gospel of John. You see, wine bookends the earthly ministry of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Here at his first miracle and a wedding at Cana, Jesus turns water into wine. And then three years from this moment, Jesus will gather in an upper room and wine will be important again. Jesus, now having gathered 12 disciples, will celebrate the Passover meal with them for the last time on the night that he will be betrayed and arrested and sent to the cross. The gospel of Mark chapter 14 tells us that on that night, He took a cup and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them and then drank of it. It was a cup of wine. And then notice what Jesus says. And he said to them, this is my blood, the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. For Jesus to turn this water into wine, he is foreshadowing a different kind of wine a different kind of wine that will flow with abundance, a different kind of wine that will be poured out for a different kind of joy, the joy that was set before him when he endured the cross. Brothers, Jesus is offering you wine this morning. He's offering the joy of salvation through his very own blood blood that was poured out for you. So this morning I ask you, do you feel unclean? Do you recognize as much as you try to wash yourself, you're always unclean. As much as you try to do better and try harder and make your sin go away on your own, do you see that you're always dirty? This morning, do you see that you need a deeper washing? that you need a different kind of drink, not just any kind of wine, but the wine that Jesus offers in himself, the wine that he's poured out for you and for me.
The story ends, John 2, verse 11, telling us why this miracle exists in the first place. And in many ways, it's a great beginning for us in our study that this is why all of the miracles exist. And this is where we're going to end. John 2, verse 11, we're told that this, Jesus turning water to wine, was the first of his signs. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. In other words, why did Jesus do this miracle and why did he do any of the miracles? It's so that he could manifest his glory. So that in this simple, small moment, we might catch a glimpse of the kingdom of God incarnate. We might catch a glimpse of this great story of redemption that is all around us even now. But we might see it tangibly with our very eyes. This morning, we need to ask God to give us spiritual eyes. Because though we cannot see Jesus right in front of us, turning water into wine, he is working miracles today. Philosopher David Hume put it this way. He was a skeptic. You should know that. Didn't believe. But I want you to hear what he said. He said, today it takes a miracle for any reasonable person to believe in the Christian religion. For this requires more than reason. It requires faith. But anyone who is moved by faith into such belief must be aware of a continuing miracle within him. Brothers, that's what we need to see this morning and what we need more than ever. We need to be aware of a continuing miracle within us that God by his grace and mercy has given us Jesus Christ. And he has offered to every person the opportunity to drink deeply of the wine that he offers and find everlasting life. Have you seen him? Have you seen him even this morning? Have you seen him manifest his glory through this miracle? And like the disciples, do you believe? Have you placed your faith, your hope, and your trust in the miracle of Jesus Christ? Let me pray for you. Father in heaven, we are thankful to be gathering together again as men, as brothers. And I pray now for my brothers, for these men, that as they meet together, that you would do your work through your word, that Holy Spirit, you would work through the gathering of the saints, that these men in their fellowship and accountability and honesty would begin to work this miracle deep in their hearts, that for all of us this semester, we'd begin to see that you are currently working a miracle all around us, this great miracle of redemption. We pray in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We'll see you next week, Tuesday morning, same time, same place, pcpc.org. We'll see you there.